Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Zahidi, Zahedi. There you go. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Um, welcome to What's the Point? Uh, brief introduction. Kimia is an Iranian-American lawyer and activist born and based in New York. She actually did a short, well, long, I think, year in Iran in 2013 and where she <laughs> lived and loved. And we will get into that. She has an MA in International Relations from John Hopkins, worked in journalism for human rights and nonprofits, and her work has been published in Vice and UPenn Law Schools Journalist, Journal School. A journal with I it. can't read my own writing, which is <laughs> the problem. Okay, she's very active within the Iranian-American community, and she serves on the board of Waterwell, a civic arts organization. We are so excited to have you. Kimia and I, similar to Annabelle and I, are newer friends, but I feel like we've our sisters and cousins and have known each other forever. I feel the same way. It's crazy. Someone pointed out, they were like, you've only met like twice. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's crazy. I feel like I've known you forever. So well-spoken, so vulnerable about your experiences. I'm so excited to have you. And yeah, welcome to What's the Point? Thank you, guys. Welcome. I'm so, so happy to be here and excited. We are excited. We are very excited. So we start every podcast, as you know, because you are an amazing listener. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, um, with asking you what your definition of fulfillment is and then what your definition of success is and if they're at all related. Well, I think they are related, but I'll go into them separately. I think for fulfillment, and this is a ever-evolving thing for me, I think it's been different at different periods of my life, but right now, and I gave this some thought, I feel fulfilled when I feel connected to the world around me. And by that, I just mean connected to the earth, connected to my history, meaning my ancestors, my country, where my parents are from. Uh, my communities that I'm a part of now, that's a pretty hard thing to do, to feel connected to all of those things. And then for success, I mean, as far as like professional success, for me, that means now feeling valued and feeling like I belong. So I think specifically for me, that means feeling like my unique set of skills, like the things that are completely unique to me that I think are the best use of my mind, the best use of my my own personal experience, that those things are showing in my professional life and that those things are valued for, like basically I'm valued for who I am mm -hmm. as me. And that plays into fulfillment because I don't think I can feel connected to my communities and my workplace and those things that I listed previously if I don't feel that, if I don't feel valued. So they're definitely connected for me. Do you feel fulfilled right now? In some ways, yeah. I feel the most fulfilled that I have ever felt, I think, besides maybe when I was like a very little kid. And 
I'm not sure that I feel the the professional success that I just described to you yet, but even just identifying that that's what I'm looking for gives me such a sense of comfort because I didn't have that for a lot of my life. I feel like I was really searching, wondering, like, why don't I, why don't I like it here? Why don't I feel good here? Is it that I'm not good at working? Is it that I'm not good at school? Like, what is it that makes me feel like I don't belong to these communities? And oftentimes it was just that I didn't feel like I was valued as me, that who I am belonged in those spaces. So it's something that I'm looking for actively in the places that, you know, I'm working and the people with whom I'm working. So it's really nice to know that. It feels comforting. Yeah, I think it ties back to self-worth, right? And I think there's so many formative experiences growing up that you develop your sense of self-worth, like could be a shitty boss or could be like a cousin, like putting you down and in the most naive way, but like you took it in a certain way, which inherently affects like, you know, how you feel about your value and later on in life. Exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of my life I've been told no, (laughs) and that um, the way I am actually isn't good and isn't right. I'm a very opinionated person. I'm obviously a woman, but I was once a girl, an opinionated girl. And those things were threatening. And I oftentimes was very vocal about injustice and things around me that I didn't think were right. And it didn't sit well with a lot of people and it didn't sit well with a lot of the communities that I was a part of. And I actually see those things now as being like my superpower and can really serve the communities in which I'm a part. And that includes my workplace, that includes places that I volunteer, that includes my friend groups and my social networks. Like I feel like I have a lot to offer just by being myself. And there will always be people who find me threatening or not suited to them in their worldview. And I think now I'm at a very, very comfortable point where I don't need everyone to like me. I don't need everyone to, I don't need to work with everybody. I just need to work with people who see the ways in which I can, you know, serve. See you for your authentic self. Yeah. And value that and want that around, want it to either like help build their business or whatever it is. No, what I think so amazing about that is I think oftentimes as as a kid, you are you you have this like kind of strong willedness to you. You have this authenticity, you have your magic, and then you kind of go into adolescence and you got thrown into society and they try to fit you in this box. And it's like, no, you can't be opinionated, you can't stand out like that. You have to like fit in. And I think a lot of people end up by molding into that society's box, whereas you were able to like stay true to your authenticity, right? Was there ever a time where you like conformed a little bit and kind of veered off path? Honestly, not really. And that has led to a lot of struggle and a lot of really difficult times Um, because I've always really tried to stay true to myself, and that hasn't been the easiest path. I kind of wish at times that in high school, for example, I went to a very, very intense pressure cooker private school in New York, and I wasn't willing to adhere to that school's perception of what, you know, an ideal successful student was. I really just lived my life the way that I wanted to live it and was like defiantly myself. And that was really hard. It was really tough for me. I got a lot of pushback. I mean, I think it was the best formative experience of my life. Like when people ask me if I would have rather gone to a different school, the answer is always no way. Because first of all, it was an amazing education, just period, hard stop. But also, I learned everything that I didn't want to be by being around people I didn't want to be like. (laughs) It's a great (laughs) way to put it. And I became so myself as a result of being surrounded by, okay, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. 
that's a culture, that's a behavior, that's a pattern that I think is bad, not only interpersonally, but for the world. I started like seeing this school as a microcosm of the world and being like, this is the United Nations. Who do I want to be in the United Nations? Do I want to be the aggressor country or do I want to be the peacemaking country? And it was such a good way for me to figure out who I was. But the answer to your question is, I have probably, I mean, inevitably conformed, you know, a million times every day in some form or another. But I think I always come back to being myself. And like I said, it hasn't been an easy <laughs> journey. Yeah, I think I was going to ask you like, because you the first the first question you answered, like using your value, your unique value and being rewarded for that, like when people recognize that and see that. And I was going to ask, how do you foster that? Because I think Annabelle and I started this podcast because we felt like we can't, we kind of walked pretty far away from ourselves by subscribing to what society wanted. Right. And really unknowingly. Like, I think obviously, and not 100% of the time either, like you said, like, I think it's sometimes it's subconscious. Sometimes you don't even realize how far you are until you're like, wait, I did all these things. Why am I not happy? For you, I think you're explaining that you were always kind of yourself. Have there been any moments of doubt with that? Because I know. And I'm also curious as to who were kind of the naysayers, because I definitely was very outspoken as a kid and just very like larger than life. And I don't know if it's like immigrant parents. I don't know what it is, but I remember constantly being told like I was too much. That was my thing. I was too much. And I was like always trying to shrink myself and afraid to be myself. And I'm just curious as to like, if you're comfortable sharing, who was kind of doing that? And it sounds like you came out the other side still strong and still yourself, but have there been moments where you're like, whoa, like wake up and kind of be like, what am I doing? Why am I on this path? Like, There have been lots of people, I think, in different phases of my life. My parents, probably not. They, I don't know that they were. I know that my mom would often say, you know, your star shines really bright let other people shine bright too. And I actually think that's still great advice. Yeah. And I didn't interpret that necessarily as like dim your light, but just, you know, make space for others, <laughs> <laughs> um, which be I consider love. consider it. Yeah. Yeah. Be, yeah. And just know your power and use it wisely and use it kindly. So, you know, that was sort of one narrative that I heard from my parents, particularly from my mom. But I think that it started when I was a kid, everyone loved all these traits that I've just described, that I had a really defined personality, that I was very true to my principles. I have always had the same principles. I always saw injustice and like spoke out against it or wanted things to be more fair. Yeah, th which is not to say that I wasn't like ever bossy as a kid or like unkind mm -hmm. to people. I'm sure that there's like someone, if they listen to this, who in kindergarten was like, oh, can you this mean <laughs> to me or something? But I was growing and developing a pretty like strong sense of good. You know, that was always my goal. I would always feel really guilty if I did anything bad. So anyway, anyway as a kid, that was really valued. And people, I feel like, validated me all the time. It started with boys. <laughs> that was really when it started. As many insecurities that people, you know, face mm -hmm. kind of develop around puberty, this was one of those things. So I started recognizing that some boys found me extremely threatening and were very, very mean to me, but also really, like, wanted to, you know, like me, date me, be with me kind of thing. And that is weird. Yeah. Um, as a kid, because on the one hand, you recognize that the thing that people don't like about you is also the thing that they do like about you. It's very confusing. And that has kind of been a a steady narrative amongst what you called the naysayers is they like it, but then they really, really don't like it too. Or they like it when it's like convenient for them to like it. Exactly. Or when it doesn't threaten their entire like perception mm -hmm. of 
the world or like meritocracy or success or things like that. But once it becomes threatening to some sort of like deeper narrative that they have in their head, Mm -hmm. then it becomes pretty threatening. And this has gotten me in trouble. It has, I mean, it eventually, I hate to launch into something so like intense and traumatic and, you know, warning, content warning to whoever is listening to this, but I'm about to mention sexual violence. But I was eventually raped in 2016. And I attribute that person's vitriol towards me to this same set of qualities that I have. Meanwhile, the person who assaulted me at one point really wanted to be around me, wanted to be my friend, found me to be an interesting and dynamic person to be around, but eventually could do that to me in such a violent and like explicit way. So it's a really hard thing to know that being yourself can lead to some people, and I do want to emphasize this, really seeing your worth and your value. There have been amazing people in my life, mentors, you know, so many different people who have seen me, tried to nourish whatever it is within me that they see and really tried to give me perspective and advice and encourage me in various different ways. That has been true. But it has also been true that I have made a lot of people angry and that that anger has led to, you know, one of the biggest traumas of my life. So that's a hard thing to deal with, that I, in some ways, brought on the pain that I have experienced just by being myself. How do you not carry that post, right? Like I think, and maybe you still do, but I think most, or I can only speak for myself, I would probably feel extremely insecure about that, right? And I think, and I do in many ways, in other forms, and I haven't like knock on wood that hasn't happened to me but like I can't imagine trying to get my thoughts straight obviously it's like a heavy topic but I feel like you've you know you pivoted into deciding to go to law school after what happened which is like very empowering I can imagine yeah and how did you sort of take that and be like I'm going to do something productive and I guess I'm asking I would hope fulfilling for you versus carrying that shame and just being like, I can't be myself anymore. Yeah. And just Jazz, just to like kind of add to that. First of all, I really appreciate you sharing that because I know that's like very daunting and I can only imagine like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. But, you know, like the perspective that you just shared of like recognizing like where the rape may have come from, to me, takes a lot of like internal processing, like it really shows that like you've really done the work either in therapy or with yourself or with whatever tools that you had to come to the realization of like how that kind of happened Um, because you were able to articulate it in such a like, almost like you took this horrible experience and articulate into this like really beautiful like narrative and came to terms with it, it felt like. And so, like, that's my question, too, is, like, how do you kind of, like, get that perspective, which kind of similar to what what Jasmine is saying after such a traumatic experience, but to, like, really come out of it kind of almost, like, enlightened because you've, like, learned something and uncovered something about yourself? I'm going to deal with Jasmine's (laughs) question first because they're both—I have so much to say. Um, But I definitely carry it. I definitely struggle— with that feeling of, you know, is there something wrong with me, right? But ultimately, and I think that this comes from my childhood, I really like myself. I do. I really like myself. I used to say when I was younger to myself, like, I would give myself a hug in the mirror and just, like, put my head on my shoulders and hug myself. And I have a lot of self-compassion. I don't know where it comes from. That's amazing. I mean, that's what people pay a lot of money to go. I've <laughs> paid a lot of money and Same. read a lot of books about like how to give myself compassion. So, But that's on a very, very foundational level. That's amazing. So, 
Yeah, it's really great. But that doesn't mean, you know, on more surface levels um, that I don't doubt myself, that I don't feel insecurity. I definitely do. But I think having that foundational self-love has been my saving grace and has been the power and strength behind what we talked about earlier of always staying true to myself. That has been the kind of fuel and gas that helps me do that. As far as the processing, (laughs) I absolutely am in therapy. So I'll just (laughs) say that first. And was before the rape. I started therapy in like 2013, but in many ways had sort of been therapized um, throughout my life because I grew up with a culture of self-reflection in my family and a lot of discussion. And my mom is an extremely self-reflective person who's been in therapy since I was a kid. And it's been a culture around me to question oneself, critique oneself, process, et cetera. So that's first and foremost, and everyone should be in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, I also process all the time. And I actually think it has not necessarily always been a good thing for me, the degree to which I process. I spend so much—I used to, now less so, thank God, because it's become sort of reflexive. And also, I'm in a much better place than I was in the past. But I used to spend a lot of time processing things. And this actually leads to a kind of tangential but different topic of— just kind of trauma in general, I feel and felt, have felt my whole life that I was born into trauma, that I was born into generational grief and trauma and recognized that at a young age for whatever reason. And probably it came from my mom being very, very open and honest about her trauma having fled her country and her grief that she felt for her country and for her father who left there, he didn't leave, for her land and her home and her friends who were there. It was an immense pain and grief that was in my home, which is odd because if you were to be in my house, you would think it was like the most joyous place in the world laughter and music everywhere. And my mom reading poetry every night. It was like with music playing, my dad's on the piano and my I'm playing violin and my brother's on the drums. But there were these pockets of where I would like see behind the curtain and just become privy to this immense, this enormous pain that I, as an empath, really internalized, like felt very, very deeply and didn't process that really until I was much older. And many decisions that I've made in my professional and private life have been in search of that processing, in search of that finding meaning for that grief, finding meaning for that pain. And yeah, I mean, Jasmine knows this, but I decided to move to Iran after I graduated college, in part because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, the thing that we're grieving, the thing that my entire family, I mean, so much pain around having left Iran, so much pain, not just around having left Iran. By the way, I'm Iranian, but... (laughs) (laughs) I think Um, I mentioned it in the intro. Um, Not just pain around having left, but pain around having lost the country, Mm -hmm. right? So the country actually just went away. Their culture, their understanding of what that land was and just the way that the fabric of society changed within like a couple of years and even overnight, some could argue. That's really nuts to think about. Like if we think about that, That's like Handmaid's Tale kind of thing. Like there was a revolution and then America, the U.S., everything that we know and love is just gone. And now it's a different place. That's crazy. So like I said, a lot of, you know, pain and grief around that. And 
I think as I got older, I started realizing a lot of this pain and grief has to be processed. I might not be able to know the Iran that my parents lived in. I may never, not, not I may, I will never see that place. But I can get a better understanding of what it was and what it is. And I can smell the air if I want to, because I can go there. I can see the soil and the land and the geography and the landscape and the animals that are native to that country. Those haven't changed, except for the ones that died out. But you know what I mm-hmm. mean. I can see the people and the culture and just for one minute be in an environment where everyone's speaking my language, that probably will help me. I can go to the street where my mom's house used to be on. That might be able to help me. And spend time with my mom's childhood friends and hear about stories of my parents in college. So that was, you know, the impetus behind a really big decision that I made in my life defiantly to go to Iran against, you know, my parents' wishes and against the wishes of, like, our entire Iranian-American community. Jasmine knows it's not very common for people to encourage you to go to Iran. Mm -mm. In fact, it's really discouraged under the guise of, like, it's unsafe, you could get arrested. But I would argue that it's just kind of rooted in, like, we left, we can never go back, that place is traumatic, it's different Mm -hmm. than what we know, please don't go there. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so I have done a lot of processing in my life prior to the rape. And when was the rape before or after Iran? After. after. Uh, I went to Iran after I graduated in 2013. And then I spent, you know, close to a year there. Graduated undergrad. Graduated undergrad in 2013. After I graduated, decided to go to Iran. Again, a really Crazy decision. I know. It's not something that I could. (laughs) My parents don't go back, right? Yeah. It's so traumatic. It's so, I mean, well, especially given everything happening right now, particularly not safe. But yeah, like my parents, they don't want to master repressors. They They close the book. Yes. And they don't want to put it it behind them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so crazy. I've had that conversation many times with my parents where I'm like, you guys should write a book. Like you, people don't know. And I think I just heard this fact that the Iranian diaspora is the second wealthiest diaspora, which doesn't surprise me. Like we're yeah, hardworking and, you know, intelligent and it's something to be proud of. But I think because of that, people don't realize what our parents came from and what they left and what happened. Right. You know, I think they make people can make a lot of assumptions about the way Iranians live and Iranians are notoriously lavish and generous. And so I think people make a lot of assumptions about what that means for what happened. But only now I think people are really interested in what actually happened. But it's, it is really heavy. And what I'm so impressed by and interested in, like when, if I count back to 2013, I also graduated USC then. I was like, (laughs) <laughs> not <laughs> I went to like the whitest USC so white I was in a sorority I was with like all blondes I was blonde at the time it's weird <laughs> but you know like I was just so disconnected from my culture and my not so disconnected but c- disconnected enough you know and I think for you to not even have not just this awareness but this interest to move there is and, like and conviction like you were like no one's gonna stop me yeah um Yeah, I I think that's just, it's really incredible. Do you think you were able to do what your mission was, which was like kind of to like release some of that trauma in your journey? Uh, So much. So you (laughs) felt like so much. It was the best. You felt like lighter when you got back. Like I feel lighter even thinking about it now. And you you fell in love. We want to hear that story. Well, that was part of it. Yes, I did. It took a little bit of, there were some growing pains at the beginning and some adjusting that I had to do. I mean, it really is kind of like going to a different planet because Iran is so, and was at that time in particular, so isolated from the world. I mean, it's just as isolated now, but it was under the most severe round of sanctions that any country in the history of the world has ever experienced, which just means that like their economy, their was just completely cut off. And they were, as a country, like growing 
in isolation, Mm -hmm. which means that when you go there, you're like, none of this, there's no references to outside stuff or very, there were, of course, because we live in a globalized age, but not to the degree that most other countries have. So it was like going to Mars and you're living under a repressive, you know, Islamic Mm -hmm. regime. So you, of course, have to cover your hair. You know, I'm sure a lot of people are not well informed about what life in Iran is actually like, which is totally fine. And I don't judge you at all because there's a lot of misinformation out there. But there was this weird dichotomy between like women are very strong there and actually very like empowered. And every woman that I met was like an amazing artist or lawyer or judge or like some, you know, crazy thing. Actually, I didn't meet any judges there, but I do know an (laughs) Iranian, a former Iranian judge who's amazing. But, you know, lawyers and surgeons and architects, that coupled with this is a historically, systemically, deeply patriarchal place. So that was strange. Um, But I also had for the first time heard people around me speaking Farsi, buying stuff in Farsi. I mean, anything from like you'd walk in the bazaar and someone shouting whatever fruit they're selling and the cost of the fruit that they're selling in Farsi, so deeply soothing to my spirit, so insanely powerful. And even now, just talking about it, I'm like moved to tears. And what I was moved to tears constantly when I was there. My I fell in love with my mom's friend's son. Wow. (laughs) Whose number she had given me for just like, okay, well, if you're going to go there, please keep these people's phone numbers on hand. Reach out to them. Please see everyone that I know there so that I feel better about, you know, the whole thing. And the fact that this person had a connection to my parents when they were kids was really (laughs) powerful to me. And the fact that his dad and mom were around, well, mostly his dad, but were around in the formative period of my parents falling in love and getting married and the revolution. My parents were dating and then later married during the revolution, like during the protests, during the actual changing of power. They were in medical school in Tehran University, which was like the hub of the revolution. It's such an insane experience that they had that no one else in my parents' life here in the States had any can relate can mm-hmm. relation to. They met most of their friends here. Some of them they met at medical school. I mean, two of them. But the rest of them, they were all people that they met here and didn't know them back then. So anyway, that was really powerful. And then the land itself, it's a country of many, many thousands of years of human life. And I think that there's just, not to get too woo-woo, but there's like just an innate power in being in a place where you, like as a human being, have thousands of years of ancestry. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was really important to me. I was friends with all of my mom. My mom had a group of five female friends from middle school who she was extremely close to, who were her friends before my dad, which is very important to me because I think a lot of Iranian women, um, women in general, uh, a lot of people, I'll say, give up (laughs) a lot of their identities when they marry. Yeah. And just find a partner especially of their gener- people of their generation. So it was very important to me to meet my mom's friends who just knew her as Nasreen, that's her name. And that to me was a lot, a lot of processing. And yeah, I mean, I could talk about this forever, but. Do you feel like that gave you, I can imagine, it sounds like it did, like it feels like it brought you back to life in some ways, right? There's like this underbelly of sadness that you're talking about in your household and like going to relieve that. Do you feel like that gave you a lot of purpose in your life? Like, was that sort of like this adventure of a lifetime in a way? Like, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's like, you know, like I went abroad to London. For six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't I also lived abroad <laughs> Wait, in Paris? Like, I had that fun experience too. You know, but like. Yeah, it, this was not like that. Of this course. Was, but is this, I, you know, I, I don't mean to like completely like downplay my experience, but I mean, this is like, to me, that's someone who's in touch with themselves enough yeah. to seek. Like that's seeking in the best way. And that's an, at an incredibly young age, which is so admirable. Like, is that. Yeah, to be self-aware enough at that age when normally people out of college are focused on sororities and I was boys. I like, focused on the wrong, I don't know right? what I was doing. You were self-aware enough to know <laughs> that there was so much pain and generational trauma in your family that you felt it was like your personal mission to go to Iran and kind of release some of that. Like, where did you find that self-awareness from? And it's also sort of like exposure therapy. You totally. like followed your pain. You were like, I see something here and I want to go explore it. That's exactly what it was. It's incredible. I don't think you guys are giving me a lot of credit that I'm not sure I deserve because I don't know that I was completely aware of what I was doing. I knew that I had to do it. Like there was three months that I was there for or two and a half months that I was there this is how it started. I decided I was going to go to a language intensive program there. My Farsi was already good, but I wanted it to be better. And I had just done some research on Iran in my undergrad on the effects of sanctions on civilian life. So in my head, I was like, oh, well, I need to master Farsi in order to be a better researcher on Iran topics. And that was sort of the impetus, right? I wasn't like, oh, I need to go follow my pain. <laughs> that was what I was telling myself I needed to do. And then when I got there, I had a flight back, a return flight back, and I took it. I My mom came, and we had a week there together, and then we came back to the States. And I was so unhappy here and was like—and that's when this sort of self-reflective element came in where I was like, what is it that makes me want— I felt like I needed to go back there, that I wouldn't be able to—I was at that time applying to grad school. I was like, I'm not going to be able to go to grad school without seeing that through. I need to go back. And then I just got a flight. I didn't even tell my parents. I got a flight. And a couple days before, I was like, I'm going back, and I am getting a job, and I am getting an apartment, and wow. this is it. So I'm not sure that I was aware at the time. And really, it just felt like a need, like an actual instinctive need. How did you know you were going to be there for the year? Like, did you say, I'm going to be here for a year and I'm going to come home? Or was it kind of like, I'm ready to go back? I don't think I had a return flight. I think that I had a natural return date, which was the start of my grad program in the fall. I remember receiving my... I got some acceptances and some rejections, but I re remember receiving those responses from grad schools when I was in Iran, which was so bizarre because, like I said, you're like in Mars and like <laughs> Columbia is giving you, you know, a response or like Tufts or Hopkins. But how is it like adjusting back into grad school life after? Very confusing. That was the part that— And was that around when the rape happened or what was the timeline of that? Uh, the rape happened in 2016, a week or two after I graduated my grad program. Uh, so there was, you know, two years. I started grad school in fall of 2014 and graduated in May So at this time you were like 25, 24. Yeah, 24, wow. 23, I started grad school. But when, when you were raped, was you were about 25? 25, yeah. Wow. But that adjustment of 
like I, I felt the impact of having gone to Iran very, very much. And you might be able to relate. Honestly, both of you might be able to relate to this. But as a child of immigrants, I always, especially immigrants who can't go back to their country, like their country is either, you know, gone or they can't go back for political reasons. I always felt like I was like split between two places and like two cultures and that I didn't really fit in either one. And that feeling really nagged me in that period, in the two-year period that I, um, actually for a long time, longer than that. Um, but that feeling of, you know, I, I don't really fit in or like belong with my American community because I have this thing that they don't understand at all and they'll never have access to. And of course, Iran and the U.S. have terrible relations. So there's not a lot of inter- you know, inter-country information sharing. So I always felt like I was like this ambassador for <laughs> Iran where I was like, no, it's not actually like that. Women can ride bikes, <laughs> but also the regime is really bad, you know, or on the flip side to my Iranian friends who worshipped America and worshipped U.S. culture, a lot of them, you know, especially when we were a lot younger, I would be like, no, 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 no. That's not the vibe. The vibe is it's actually a little bit, you know, messy and— all the things that you think you like have these negative impacts. So anyway, feeling like kind of caught in between those cultures, I felt it exponentially more after I got back because I didn't feel Iranian when I was in Iran. I felt American. And then I got, got back and I was like, oh, I'm so Iranian. Can't even fit in here. And I think that is actually a bigger dichotomy that I have felt. And maybe you felt this too of like East and West and how mm -hmm. I've, I always, when I was younger, saw my personality as being like a duality between like my East and my West. I don't adhere to that narrative anymore, but that's how I saw it. I was like, my East is my emotional kind of like challenges, all of these normative assumptions about success and about competition and selfishness. Like I always used to say like, you know, I'm so, I wasn't meant to be here because here it's really valued and to be selfish and to put yourself first and not think about your community and not interdependence is seen as a negative, especially in, you know, the early 2000s when we were growing up. And then my West was, but whatever they're doing, putting people too ahead of themselves that's too challenging for me. When I go to Iran, I can't go to someone's house the second I get off the plane just because that's the right thing to do. I need to go to the hotel and take three hours of rest. Meanwhile, the entire family erupts as like, that's so rude. How mm -hmm. could she do that? That was always my dichotomy. And I think that the processing that I did in the wake of the rape afterwards not only helped me heal horrible, horrible pain related to that experience, but really helped me resolve this issue. I figured out that like boundaries are not related to East and West. Like I can take a little bit of that culture and a little bit of that culture and create something my own. And all of that, I think, came from processing that kind of immense trauma. That was like the peak. Wow. Yeah, I think you clearly have, or it sounds like you have much more language around that duality. Like, I think growing up, my parents were much more like, let's forget about it, about it and assimilate. Obviously, the coolest things about me now, I think, are that I am come from being Persian, like hosting and, you know, my fact that like my parents will casually be like, I'm going to have a 30-person dinner party and there's <laughs> going to be a three-piece orchestra and it's going to be fucking amazing. Like, that's so Persian. And so like Persians like to party. They like to host. They're generous. They're kind. They're smart funny, yep. love have, prioritize having fun. Those are all amazing qualities that I think I exhibit most of them and most, and I do think it's cultural. However, I feel like growing up, I was just in such denial of it. And even though those things shine through inevitably, like I'm sure you can relate to this, like 2001, when 9-11 happens, you're like, oh God, people just look at me like I had someone call me a terrorist once. 
Once, I'd please. The boy <laughs> that I was in love with in high school used to call me Towelhead. No like way. Like as a term of endearment. Oh, of course. If and you're he listening. also he loved and hated you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, if you're listening, the opposite look at of love now. is not hate. <laughs> He's a friend, so he oh. can, we can yeah, shout but that, him out. Such a, and then you like internalize that. And you're, I also went to a really white school, um, which I don't regret. I have a huge community that I love and whatnot, but I was one of two Persian it was like my sister and I and then like one other Persian family. And so mm-hmm. I think for me, like I was just more just shutting down that side versus even like feeling the duality. And it wasn't until almost recently where I was like, this is something I actually want to foster. And I don't want this, I don't want Farsi to die with my parents. I don't want to lose these traditions and these amazing things. And I think also what's happening right now in Iran is really put the focus on what Iran was like before and what our parents left, and that it's not just hijabs and, right. you know, this craziness. But it sounds like you had much more awareness around that living within you, which I think for most immigrant kids, that does live within them, right? Because I totally understand that where I'm like, I don't fully, I remember I had a friend who's African-American say to me, he said something along the lines of like, they don't see you as white. Like, and I had this moment where I was like, huh, it's so true. Like when I walk out of a room, <laughs> yeah. they're not thinking like, like they see difference. Oh yeah. Like, of course they do. Of course. But it's so difficult because you did grow up in America and you feel American, you know? See that and, I didn't. Interesting. I didn't. I always notice the differences. Yeah. Always. And, you know, even anything from like friends coming to my house and being like, what's that smell? You know, like yeah. the house just smelled like Persian food yeah. and like fenugreek or whatever it yeah. was that we use that smells. And I was like, I didn't even know my house smelled. That was like when I was 10. Yeah. And you just, in I at least, internalized all of those Did comments. Did you have shame and, around it? Or were no, you proud of it? I felt, you know, so much credit to my mom. Shout yeah. out, mom. You Girl, are the mom. best. I thought my mom was the coolest person ever and so gorgeous, and so dynamic, and so interesting. And I really, really looked up to her, and still do. But as a kid, it was like this North Star for me, where I was like, anything that this woman is, Mm -hmm. is so incredible. And she has like a really intense, and my grandmother too, a really intense internal strength that I didn't have that much room for shame around being Iranian. I thought people who gave me a hard time about being Iranian were so stupid. I did. I really was like, I feel really sorry for them because they're missing this huge swath of knowledge about this amazing place and this amazing history. Like, how do I help them? And then I, you know, took on the role of like being the ambassador for Iran to every single person that I knew, which was like a really intense responsibility <laughs> to like saddle yourself with as a child. Yeah. Well, how, did you, how did you get to a place where you can be so articulate about whether it's the generational trauma, the kind of experiences you had as a kid, going to Iran, the rape, all of those things? Were you always just kind of like able to articulate <laughs> the feeling or like did it come like a couple years after and the through therapy and working on yourself and whatnot for you to be like, this is what happened to me. This is like the patterns that may have led to it. This is what I've learned from the experience. And this is what I'm doing from it. I have no idea. And I also don't know that that's true. Like that's you saying that is. Well, you are extremely thank you. articulate. That's very, very sweet. Yeah. Articulate. <laughs> because a lot of these but things are really, really heavy. And you say them in a way that is like, not to discount like how heavy they are, but you say them much more in like a conversational way. And like, you don't talk about just the negative. You talk about like the silver lining and the like personal growth that 
came out of it, which I think Mm -hmm. is really beautiful. And, you know, everything in our life is meant to teach us something. And sometimes, you know, we get in this like spiral of like, you know, life is happening against me instead of like life is happening for me. So all of these experiences, no matter how bad they are, they're shaping me. They're giving me my magic. They are giving me a gift. It's like, because of these experiences, like I am now like helping others like get through this or helping others like with injustice. Right. So I, if you don't already, you should be really proud of yourself (laughs) for for having that. That is so, Um, it's actually such a, first of all, it's so sweet. Um, And I'm going to, my therapist has told me that I have to take, you know, compliments compliments and carry them. I like lose them in a day. So I will carry that with me. But it's an interesting thing. And it makes me think about how my definition of fulfillment, feeling connected to the earth, to my communities, to my history, to my everything. The way in which I do that, I've realized is that I attach meaning to pain and grief. It's the only way that I can deal with those things Hmm. to not have them paralyze me. I need for them to take on a meaning. And I actually think it's part of my worldview that two of the only things that are guaranteed in life are pain and grief. Grief because people are going to die and pain because we're all going to experience pain and it comes with joy and happiness and any feeling. And what do we do with that? Like we, I don't want to be a negative person. I don't want to just live in my pain and just live in my grief. I think in order to make life beautiful, which to me is like the only thing that I want to do with my life in this short time is to attach meaning to those things. And I certainly have done that with the rape, but I think in large part, For most of my life, I have been trying to do that with the grief and pain of my family and my generational trauma around having left Iran and, you know, other sorts of things around patriarchy. Yeah, well, that's what's so fascinating to me is that you, what both of you are saying and what you mentioned, like coming back to fulfillment, all of these experiences, like you're like, wow, I have this generational trauma and yet it's inspired not only your exploration, but your work, right? You've been a historical consultant for an Iranian historical consultant on on multiple projects, right? Oh, that's a generous way to say it, but... <laughs> no, but that's, you know, like, you have this yeah, wisdom, be, you have this, like... You've got, you're now, you've, like, giving back. Like, it's, yeah, it's you've making taken, your fulfillment go full circle. You've taken these things, and instead of being the victim of them and being like, well, it's because of this, and just excusing yourself with these things, you've explored them, leaned into them, including the rape. I'm going to go back Mm. to law school, which like obviously we want to hear more about like that decision to go back to law school. That's incredible, right? That's an that's incredibly impressive. That's so. Yes, take a take a moment to celebrate (laughs) this win. Take this in. (laughs) I'll take that with me too. So you can you can listen to it whenever you want. (laughs) So I have a question around trust. Like after something like that happens to you at 25 years old, how does your relationship with trust change? Man, um, a lot, especially surrounding, you know, being myself, just the thing, the dynamic that we were talking about earlier, like that was a real pivotal moment where I was like, oh, not only can I make people angry with being myself, it leads to someone, you know, hurting me in a really intense and violent way. And it definitely affected my trust with friends it affected my trust really with everyone, even with my family, even with my mom, even with the closest people in my life. I doubted for a while being myself, this thing that we were talking about, the strong sense of self was definitely, definitely t- challenged in that period. But how did I deal with that? It's such a good question. I think, and it's ironic that this is, well, I think it's different. You just complimented me for speaking kind of detached about things that are really hard. In a way, I actually did that a lot in that period to a fault. I remember recounting for the assistant district attorney who, you know, was had decided to take on the case against the perpetrator, a criminal case in which, you know, it's the government against him, not me against him, by the way. So the victim is just uh, 
a witness, but I was giving like a, a sort of witness statement to the assistant district attorney. And I was recounting the story and I was like making the room laugh. And I remember afterwards her sort of doing the same thing of congratulating me, being like, it's so amazing that you can talk about this that way. And I remember being like, I don't see that as a great thing. <laughs> like, that's not necessarily healthy. It is healthy here because I I think the way that you do that is you have the pain, you process the pain, and you try to articulate your suffering and be vulnerable in a smart way. But I used to be vulnerable in like a not smart way is what I'm saying. And I got hurt many, many times over and over again in the aftermath of the rape from trying to figure out to what degree am I comfortable being vulnerable? To what degree does that make me feel empowered? Because sharing my story is definitely empowering. But sharing my story with anyone and everyone in any context and every context or certain details versus other details is oftentimes deeply, deeply disempowering. And it was trial and error. It was completely trial and error. There are some close friends that I didn't tell for a full year. There's a person who I barely knew who I told the next week. And that was just, it was just trial and error of how to build trust. And eventually I started dating somebody who also had experienced immense trauma in his life. And that was, you know, a helpful educational experience. We were together for a long time or several years. And I think together we sort of, I learned how I could trust someone in large part in that relationship. Yeah. Everyone comes into your life for a reason. And yeah. so you were there to like help each other through the unique traumas that you have had. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You have such an incredibly beautiful, inspiring everything story. And I really, yeah. And mindset, I think, you know, in the end of the day, you can't control the things that happen in your life, but you can control your attitude and your actions and your reactions. And I mean, you're a living, breathing, like, you know, testament to that statement of like the, some of the worst things happened to you and you decided to like have a really positive attitude about them. So yeah, we so appreciate you sharing such color yeah, with us. Being so vulnerable with us. Yeah. Um, so you we make end it easy. <laughs> we end every podcast with asking you, what's your point? I'm now like, what is my point now after this conversation? Well, it could be um, your point for the next 10 minutes because yeah. it can always it could have change. evolved already from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, to maybe the end. this conversation changed it. Maybe it'll change in five minutes. Right now, I am in a phase of really putting myself first. It's an incredibly different attitude that I'm taking. And in the past year, I've made some really big life decisions towards that, towards that end. So for right now, my why and what's the point for me is to feel fulfilled, exactly what we were talking about, and to feel that that notion of success that we were talking about. And I think in doing those things, really prioritizing my joy, laughter, mm -hmm. <laughs> my pleasure and enjoyment, and also my worth and work. I want to work hard. These are all related to, you know, my just wanting to feel fulfilled and successful in my own definition. So that's, yeah. From start to end, beautifully articulate. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. This, this was, was amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy Norris. Happy Norris. <laughs>
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.